calling out to the Atascacita community. It's time for your Atascacita Library advanced copy. Get your notes and news now. Hello, Atascacita community, and welcome to your advanced copy. This is June 3rd of 2022, and welcome to the summer reading program. That will begin on June 6th and runs through August 6th. We're going to talk a little bit about what happens during the summer reading program and some of our favorite programs, but we have a great opener to our oceans of possibilities. Daniel was able to sit down and chat with one of the directors from the Flower Garden Banks Preserve. It's off the coast of Texas and Louisiana, quite a, quite a distance off the coast. It takes about six hours to get there, as you will learn in the interview. It is expanding preserve of marine life, and they do explorations. Look, tell you what, I'm going to save it for the experts to talk about one of the things I want to talk about is the construction going on at Atascacita Branch Library. We have a roof. We've got some walls and you will notice big stacks of bricks outside of those walls, which means the outside is going to look spectacularly finished, but we've got a lot more work. And I say we, and it's not me, it's the crew. They have a lot more work to do on the inside. We also still have a delay with the air handler that is on order. We do not have an estimated time of arrival for that very large piece of equipment. You will know when we know uh, when we're going to get that. So without further delay, as we did skip May for our podcast, but this podcast is jam-packed with lots of good stuff. We are going to start with our summer reading program, Oceans of Possibilities, with Darla, PJ, and myself. We'll turn to that interview with Daniel and the education director with the Flower Garden Banks Reserve. And we'll also have Janelle sharing some of her favorite reading picks for May's Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month. What's the first thing that comes to mind when you think of summer reading? For a lot of people, it's children's programs, children in the library reading books, but we're here to tell you today that summer reading is not just for kids. It's for adults and teens. I'm Miss Darla, and I'm here with Miss PJ. Hello. And Beth. Hello. And we're here to tell you about teen and adult summer reading. So take it away, PJ. Well, like you said, it is not all about kids. I know it's hard for adults to sometimes find the ability to just read mm -hmm. for pleasure, but it's important. It's important to give yourself that time. It's important for you to take care of yourself by finding things that you want to do that don't necessarily mean always having your children with you. If you are into history programs, programs on the environment, animals, a little bit of everything, then, you know, we've got you covered. Kind of also can be a great way if you have a child that's a reluctant reader to kind of do a competition with them, because I feel like kids model the behavior of their parents and adults, right? right. So if they see you mm -hmm. reading. That's exactly it. It's like if you want reading to be important to your children, you have to show them that it's important to you, that you will take the time to say, 
I'm reading right now. I enjoy reading. I get something out of it. Because, yes, they will copy what you do. It can also be a game. It could be a friendly game of a challenge. Hey, who do you think can read more? Who do you think can get more points, you know? If your kids are reluctant readers, maybe what you have to do is step outside the box and come up with ways to get them engaged to do this. You know, I one time proposed that to a kid who was a reluctant reader, but he was very competitive. So he was already mm-hmm. like, oh, I'm going to beat you, mom. And so that's just wonderful. Like, It's a great way to get them involved in summer reading. And like I said, that little competitive edge of, you know, here, who can read the most minutes and have Unless a time. for my family in which we are not competitive at all. And my daughter just looks at me and goes, you go on, mom. <laughs> <laughs> but you don't have that problem because your kids are just natural readers. One of them, yes. One of them, no. So for those parents out there, I have the duality. I have one that is absolutely, she loves reading and hand her stuff, particularly stuff about history. And so just side note. It's not always about fiction, guys. So your yes. reluctant reader might be more about facts. So make sure that you kind of explore our nonfiction area as well. But then I have another reader. She really has to be engaged with whatever the material is about. So right now we're doing a lot of how to train your puppy. I am not going to read about how to train your puppy. You want a trainer. Here are some books that will show you how to train her. And so that's gotten her engaged. So finding kind of something that they like outside of reading and let them realize they can learn more about it is how I deal with that kind of duality in my household. Every reader can find it. Every reader their book, every book their their reader. reader. Exactly. That's what I was trying to say. Because a lot of times when I do reference interviews, even with adults, I'll ask them, what are your favorite TV shows? What are your favorite movies? Mm-hmm. If your favorite movie is Top Gun, we have fiction, but we also have nonfiction. We have tons of nonfiction books about fighter planes, and we have a lot of World War II. If you're into World War II, there's always something you can find for someone. My dad is anything nonfiction. You know, he loves history. He loves things like that. And sometimes I'm able to get him to, like, do a little bit of historical fiction if it's really good historical fiction. So even adults, you know, think about what you like. Think about what you like to do. Mm-hmm. And the great thing, too, is this doesn't set boundaries on what you have to read. Yes. So or how you do it. Mm-hmm. Yes. So if you're an adult and you enjoy reading the newspaper, that is more than fine. You will get points for reading that mm-hmm. paper, magazines, As long as you're reading, that applies to children too. If they want to read the same book five times, let them read that book five times, you know? Um, They might end up paying more attention to the details the fourth time around. Graphic novels. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of times graphic novels don't get, I don't know, they don't get their place in terms of people tend to think that books provide. They think they're lesser. Yes, yes. I don't have the facts to support this, but hopefully both of you know a bit better than I do. But my understanding is that graphic novels actually engage more parts of the brain. Did you read that? It engages not just the literary, you know, the the words. It's engaging your uh, visual literacy because you're having to interpret a lot of the story by visuals. My niece can go through probably 10 manga in a day. Whereas if she has to sit down and read a textbook, a book that has text in it, it would probably take her months to do that. You know, she has a higher visual literacy. 
graphic novels. There are, there, you know, there's superheroes, there's manga, but there's also nonfiction. There's nonfiction biographies. There's Shakespeare. There's all kinds of different graphic novels out there. There's something for everyone in graphic novels. Well, and another format that often kind of gets set aside when it comes to summer reading is audiobooks, mm-hmm. which, yes, those count as reading. The tradition of storytelling is way, way back. I mean, that was before print. So that is a way to engage with your community, with a story, is audiobooks as well. So. And the great thing about the audiobooks, too, is if you are doing a family trip, mm-hmm. you can pop in one of those audiobooks and hopefully it prevents arguments <laughs> <laughs> because they will be engaged and they'll be getting points also. Well, and a lot of adults, too, have this resistance to children's literature. And there's some amazing books out there. So don't be embarrassed to pick up, you know, a lot of the, the Blue Bonnet books mm-hmm. are very well written. The people on the Blue Bonnet Committee and the Lone Star Committees read 200 to 300 books a year to pick 20 out of that list. On that note, for me, as someone who loves history... As a history major, let me tell you, sometimes history can be difficult because of all the details. If you want to learn something like the French Revolution, which is a very scary topic in the sense that it just has so many details and there's so many counterparts. It's very complex. Yes. Pick up a kid's book. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The great thing about kids' books and even YA books is how they go about teaching a subject. They simplify it to the point where everybody can understand. It's a good starting point. You get through the kids' book and you're like, oh, okay, now you've got kind of a framework. Well, also, kid books are pretty great about introducing scary topics. Mm-hmm. One of the books that we read for Lit Chat was How They Croaked, about the mm-hmm. deaths of famous people. And yeah, that's a scary topic, deaths, right? But the author and illustrator made it less scary. It's a great way of introducing difficult topics to your children. And children's and YA nonfiction, a lot of times, always has an interesting hook to it. And so if someone's not really that much into history, there's books like Killer Style, which is about fashion that actually harmed or killed people. Things like Kelly Green, which was a a green that dye that was used mainly making arsenic. And of course, we realize how that turned out. It covers a lot of things that are really interesting and fun that even if you're not into nonfiction, you can pick up something like that. And once again, as an adult, if you're reading these books, maybe you can read it along with your kid and discuss what's going on in the book. This is going to prepare them for, you know, the star test. Because you're including critical thinking. And so if you're reading the same book with your child and you're having a discussion, well, what do you infer is going to happen? These are all going to help when it comes to that big test. In addition to the reading, a lot of people do just think of the reading part of the program. But we have amazing things that you can come to the library and do. For the teens, actually teens and adults, we're starting out on June 10th with Nerf. It does require a liability form. They're different for each group because teens can't sign legal documents. And it's going to be, you, you bring your own NERF and we provide the NERF and we're going to have all kinds of different activities. We're going to have, so that's something that both teens and adults can enjoy. 
But I really look forward to all the programs and getting to see people in the library again. That is, you know, we've had two years of a quiet library and I'm really getting ready for it to be active again and for people to come in and pick up books and come to programs. So that's what I'm excited about. The other day I was looking at at Walmart with my boyfriend and he's like, why are you looking at that? And I'm like, it's for work, (laughs) which I never thought I was going to be able to use that. But yes, I'm excited about that because it's great. You know, I, I think it's, I can remember being a teen and not necessarily wanting to do things with my parents. But this is something that I feel like would be fun. I would want to do with my parents. And I'm sure my parents, every time I got them upset as a teen, wanted to Mm -hmm. hit me with a little Nerf dart. Uh, (laughs) I'm excited about that. I'm just also excited about the variety of programming that we have. We have a little bit of everything, you know. We've got the FBI talking about elderly fraud, which I think is very important. We've got talks about Juneteenth, which, you know, is a new national holiday, but not a lot of people know the origins of it. And especially, I'm guessing, people outside of Texas, because it's a Texas holiday. Um, We have stuff on rescuing sea turtles, just a wide variety of thing. I feel like there's at least one program that I'm hoping someone's going to be like, yes, I want to do that. Because like I said, it's not just the same program over and over again. We really try to go outside of the box and Think about what we want to do, but also what's beneficial to the community, what our patrons want to see, you know, ideas. And we always have our awesome monthly adult programs, Lit Chat, Knit and Nosh, Down to Earth, which is the clay program. So we always have something really cool going on. I feel like we talk about a lot about, you know, how important it is for kids to interact with each other, but... That goes also with adults, you know, sometimes you want to be able to interact on your own level. And I know that there's a couple of people that constantly come to some of our monthly programs and I'm sure they've just become friends out of it. And it's hard as an adult to, you know, meet other people and people with the same interests and the library is a perfect place to do that because we have, like I said, such a good variety of programs. If you like to read, lit chat. If you love crafting, Craft Club, Knit and Nosh, Down to Earth, you can meet some fellow crafters. And the best thing about this is it's all free. Everything is free. So, hey, take a staycation and plan some library programs in with that. So be sure to register online at hcpl.beanstack.org. And sign up your readers, start the reading. You can read, read to, listen to audiobooks, read magazines, read newspapers. You earn points either through time or through title. So we usually recommend if you're reading really long books that we do it by time. So you'll want to count how much time you read. 30 minutes equals 10 points. If you're reading smaller books or you're reading a lot of small books to your children, you'll want to count that by title. Also, programming, 
A lot of our programs still require registration. That nice big meeting room is not ready quite yet. So we do need to control our capacity in our meeting room. And we want to make sure that the programs are not only fun, but they're also safe. Again, hcpl.beanstack.org. And be sure to join us for the Oceans of Possibilities. You've been listening to Atascacita Library Advanced Coffee. I have Daniel here from the library talking with a special guest way out from the Flower Gardens, which are really cool, Kelly Drenner. So, hi again. Hi, Daniel. Good to be here. And for those of you that caught my program all the way last year, I interviewed Kelly to talk about all the cool things they're doing at the Flower Gardens. You can go back and watch that video. Uh, it's because they had just doubled in size, the Flower Gardens. Yeah, it actually like tripled in size. Yeah, so in 2021, we had the final approval of our sanctuary expansion effort that we've been tackling for probably 15 years prior to that. So it was a long drawn out process with a lot of public approval and public comment steps along the way, which is what's really important about the National Marine Sanctuaries is that it is a very open public process that the communities have input into. And a lot of research and science information went into it. We have an advisory council for the sanctuary that helped us come up with this plan. And then, like I said, a lot of public input. We had thousands of comments over the 15 years or so that we worked on this process. So it was finalized in January of 2021. We went from having three banks to having a total of 17 banks. These reefs and banks stretch from just west of the Texas-Louisiana border then eastward, mostly off of the Louisiana coast. People used to call us the Texas Flower Gardens. Um, that's not quite as appropriate anymore. Uh, the Flower Garden Banks, East Flower Garden Bank and West Flower Garden Bank, those two banks are, yes, right on the Texas-Louisiana border. Uh, but the rest of our, as Stetson Bank is a little to the west and all the new banks are to the east, except for the one that's right in between East and West Flower Garden Banks. So, it's uh, been quite the expansion. We're now about 160 square miles, where previously we were about 56. Wow. So how has it been having triple the amount of responsibility? <laughs> well, the pandemic has made that a little difficult. So while we would have loved to have jumped in feet first with our first research season following expansion to start doing more exploration and trying to see ways of opening some of these areas up to the public by maybe installing mooring buoys and things like that, we haven't been able to do that. So this will be probably 2022, will probably be our very first full on field season um, where we can get out as much as we'd like. We may still have restrictions on how many people can be on the boat at a time, which somewhat restricts what we can get done on any given trip. Right now, mooring buoys are our first priority in the original sanctuary parts at East Flower Garden Bank, West Flower Garden Bank and Stetson, because a lot of those have gotten damaged or gone missing and so forth during the pandemic times when we couldn't get out there to maintain them. And they really need some work. We've had people, you know, call and say, hey, I only found one buoy. You know, there's more than one boat out here. What do we do? Those are really important aspects to keep people from anchoring on the reef. Um, anchoring is illegal within the sanctuary boundaries. And so having the mooring buoys provides that access for people to tie off to a, something floating at the surface rather than dropping anchor on the reef, which is our key habitat. And we don't want broken. Lots of work ahead of us. Uh, we do annual long-term monitoring efforts where we go out and examine certain parts of the reef at East Flower Garden Bank, West Flower Garden Bank, and Stetson. And what we eventually need to do is mimic these kinds of activities at all these new banks. So not all banks will get mooring buoys. Uh, some of them are shallower than others. And we'll probably start with the shallowest ones because uh, four of them are, with, are within recreational dive limits. And we will start probably with those as far as pursuing moorings. And then following that, it's how do we do long-term monitoring in deep areas that we can only visit with ROV? 
we're good at the stuff we can scuba dive and do. We've been doing that for like 30 years. But what does long-term monitoring look like, like in these deep areas and these other banks in the long term? Cool. So that's going to be a whole lot of new information. So what do you yeah. guys really, and if there's one thing that you're really excited to get data-wise, what do you think it would be? Everything we want to know about the other banks. I mean, we've explored them to some extent, which is why we knew they were important habitat and we needed to include them in the sanctuary. But right now we're working on a process to do a condition report. That's a report. It's kind of like a state of the union. It's a state of the sanctuary. What is the condition of the habitat? What is the condition of biodiversity? What is the condition of the water quality? We have this whole set list of questions that all sanctuaries answer when they do their condition report, including ecosystem services, like what is the science value of the sanctuary? What is the education value of the sanctuary? What is its sense of place and its cultural heritage? So we look at all these different criteria. And just in the last month, we've been going through all these status and trends meetings with experts in each of these areas. And what we discovered is we got tons of data on East West Flower Garden Bank and Stetson, but these newer areas, we have very limited data. We're, we're lying on what we can get from satellites because there's there been a whole lot of developments in what you can learn about the ocean just from looking at it with satellites. You can tell things about the amount of chlorophyll and the sea surface temperature and a lot of other components that help you kind of serve as proxies to tell you about other things going on in those environments. But a lot of those are really new. So we're looking forward to that technology continuing to improve, but it's going to be us in the ocean at these sites kind of confirming the data and collecting stuff firsthand to help them improve those models that are developed to do stuff by satellite. So satellites are going to be really important for us moving forward to understand more since we have such so much more area to cover and we can't get out to all of it all the time. That's a shame. It seems like it would be a great thing to call the to see your office and just be under it for most of the time instead of, you know, in an office. Well, it is our office on certain days. Uh, a lot of times between April and October, that's usually our field season. And our research staff will spend about at least every other week out there. And so when we go out to work in the sanctuary, we have our own research vessel. They leave out at night and they sleep on the way out there. So when they get up in the morning, they got a full day of work ahead. Unfortunately for them, those days are usually like 12 hour days because there's just so much to do and so little time to do it in. So we try to maximize what we get done each trip we take out there. We spend anywhere from three to five days out there, but it's about a six or seven hour boat ride just to get out there and then again to come back. And that's just to East, West and Stetson Bank. So we start going to these other banks that's a lot further travel distance and it's going to really impact what we can get done. And again, most of that work has to be done with ROVs instead of scuba divers. It's going to be challenging. Once we have the condition report done, we will then have a better feel for what we data we need. And right now, that's a lot of things for the new areas um, compared to the old ones. And what we should do to get those data, what should long-term monitoring look like in these deep, deep areas? So a lot of it is coming up with a plan and figuring out how to implement that plan. And the condition report kind of is our starting point for coming up with the next step, which is our strategic planning for the sanctuary, which comes out in a new management plan. That would be like a five to 10 year plan of what we expect to do. The last management plan came out in 2012 and said, expand the sanctuary was one of those goals. And we finally met it. So here we are, it's time to do the next management plan and figure out what our next goals are, which I imagine are gonna be a lot of data collection and how to get data. How long will it take to put together that condition report? Uh, is it gonna be months, years? The total process is a couple of years, 
We're hoping at this point, I think our goal is to have it out by the end of this year. We were already deep in it last year as far as collecting data, finding what data was out there, compiling it all. I mean, a lot of it was there, but we hadn't thought about what aspects of it we needed. So some of it was going back and looking at photographs and video and things like that and looking at it for different reasons than we might have previously to see what data we could extract, like marine debris. What is the situation with marine debris? Well, we have to go through all those ROV transects that we've done in all these different areas and how many times did marine debris show up in those? And it's not just sitting and watching hours of video. We have notes, annotations we take when we're doing this so we can go back and say, this. I need to go look at this section because we wrote something down saying there was marine debris, but let's go look at it and identify exactly what it was and so forth. So the data collection process has been the deepest. Now in the month of April, we've held nine expert meetings on status and trends. And in these, we give a 15-minute to 25-minute presentation, depending on the topic, about the question we're trying to answer and what data we have that might help us answer that question. And then we have the experts give us their feedback on whether we think the status of that question is good, fair, poor. Um, are we really confident in that? Are we in total agreement or medium agreement or low agreement? And so there's all these different aspects. And these have been anywhere from three to five-hour um, webinar meetings that we've had nine times in the month of April. We got one left in the month of May um, to finish up with these. And then we take all of that information and we write the report. So yeah, the rest of this year, we'll be writing the report based on the information we've gathered and the input from our panels of experts. Again, very wow. public process. <laughs> it's a lot of meetings, but you know, it's yeah. good to bring in the experts and you know, actually get all the data and, and have a starting point. So yeah. Well, and then our theme for the summer reading is Ocean of Possibilities. Yes, so <laughs> first off, uh, how many people are on the, the research teams that go out to the flower gardens? Uh, right now, let's see, five. Well, our whole staff is like 10, 11 people. So oh, okay. we're, we're a very small staff and we've recently lost some staff in the last year. So I think we're at 11 right now and that five of those would be researchers. We've also got an advisory council coordinator. Myself is the education outreach specialist. We have our sanctuary superintendent. We have an administrative person. We have a boat captain because we got to keep that boat running. So there's five people that go out on research. Over the years, I have also participated in some of those research trips. I am a scuba diver and I've chosen to be part of the dive team for many years. Since COVID started, I've decided, you know, that's not a priority for me right now anymore. So I won't be doing that, but I definitely want to go out on those ROV cruises. I'm personally a fish geek and I love to get out there and help them with the fish ID and the surveys and that aspect. And I love seeing all these new areas that nobody's ever been to before when we go exploring with the ROVs. That's my goal this year is to get out on at least one ROV trip and being help, helping with the collecting of the science data. That'd be awesome to, yeah, literally see an area where people haven't seen before and I uh, get to see what is there. Yeah. And speaking of possibilities, I mean, we really haven't explored these areas thoroughly at all, but we've done our part over the last 10, 15 years. And in just that time frame, we've discovered new species. We've had a new shrimp species, a new lobster species, a new black coral species. There's potentially a new algae species. It's a, a crustose algae that actually looks like coral. It, it's like reef building algae. Um, hmm. Yeah, so there's stuff that's still being studied that we've learned from these trips we've already taken. So just imagine if we continue exploring and visiting areas and every time we go, we're trying a new section because we're only seeing wherever the, the light of the camera goes. So every time we try to hit a new spot at these banks, there's so much possibility out there for discovering new species that we didn't even know existed. That's awesome. 
Uh, now I'm very curious about the, the algae that sort of acts like coral. Right, so it's called Crustose Corallin Algae, or CCA is the abbreviation in scientific circles. We had an expedition in 2019 that went out to the sanctuary and they put special equipment on our research vessel that allowed them to send signals live from the ROV to the internet and people were able to follow along with the expedition. During that expedition, they explored an area, I think it was at East Flower Garden, it was East or West Flower Garden Bank. And even as much as we've been exploring that for the last 30 years, I mean, our sanctuary is 30 years old this year, we'd never seen this area before. But it was ROV exploration. So we were looking deeper down the edges of the banks, a little further off from where we are when we're scuba diving up on the on the main coral cap. And they found this whole expansive area of stuff that looked uh, almost like leafy lettuce, but purple. And this is an algae that, that calcifies. So instead of it being animals creating the calcified structure, it's plants. And it looks like this big field of this really leafy, lettuce-like coral that is actually purple in color instead of green. They think that's actually a new species. They collected samples with the ROV, has a manipulator arm, and they can break off small pieces and put it in storage container on the ROV. We also have a suction tube on the ROV. So if something is lightweight or whatever, they can just like slurp it up like a vacuum and it slurps right into a little storage bin with water. And then when the ROV comes up, we take the samples out and start working to see what we can learn about them. There's other really cool areas in the sanctuary where we have algal nodules that are made of this crustose algae. So they look like rocks, but they're like this purplish reddish color. And they're all, they're either completely made of this crustose algae or they're algae that's encrusted over something else. And they, there's whole fields of these, but then other things like black corals and gorgonians, which are a type of softer coral, are growing up in between. And there's tons of fish in these habitats. And there's even some leafy algaes, like we think of with algae, growing in these areas. So it turns out these algal nodule zones and these crustose corallin algae fields are really important habitat. Even before seeing these, we knew crustose corallin algae was really important. It helps cement the reef together. So when you look at a section of reef and you see coral, 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 sponge, sponge, the little gaps in between, you see a lot of this encrusting purplish stuff. That's also that CCA. And so mm -hmm. it's a really important cementer on the typical coral reef that people think of, but we're finding out it's really important down deep too. And even in these areas where we have to go with ROVs because it's beyond scuba depth and because it's dark, these are algae that need light that are still growing. So there's enough light penetrating the areas that look dark to us that these things are still growing there. And it's just really fascinating stuff. It is amazing. Studying science, I'm constantly amazed at how cool and interesting and diverse and bizarre life is. Yeah, it really is. And, and so the more we explore these new areas that I don't know, the more excited I get about the things we're learning. That is awesome. Sci-fi and it's seeking out, you know, a strange new world and, you know, new interesting organisms boldly going where no people have gone before. Right? <laughs> And there are people who specialize in just studying these algae. There's a woman, uh, Suzanne Frederic, over at LSU, who is the one studying all the algae, these crustose algae that we've brought back from the sanctuary. I think it's really awesome. Yeah. It's, you know, a little nerdy, science. but yeah, really cool. Yeah. <laughs> science nerds, it's okay. Yes, it is. This is cool. For opportunities, do you use any citizen science? Are there anything that people can readily do to help with the research down to the flower gardens? Well, the citizen science that has to do with the sanctuary involves going there. So if people are scuba divers or fishers, they can help us out. We just this year joined in with the City Nature Challenge. You might be familiar with the BioBlitz thing that just happened last weekend. It's yeah. a worldwide BioBlitz and all the cities compete against each other to see who can find the most stuff and identify the most different species and all that kind of stuff. As of 2022, the Flower Garden Banks is part of the Houston-Gallison city region. 
And that was really cool. However, there are very few dive boats that go out there and the main dive boat that was going to go out and we actually taught people what they needed to do to submit data and everything, the trip got canceled. So there, there will be no data from the flower garden banks this year from the city nature challenge. But the cool thing is, is that we're set up with that. That means that anybody that goes to the sanctuary can input data into iNaturalist, the app that the city nature challenge uses. You can use all year round to identify anything. And that data is important to people in lots of different ways. So anybody that goes fishing in the sanctuary and catches a species, they can take a photo and submit it to iNaturalist. It'll help them identify the species if they didn't already know, which is important for regulation purposes. But they can also tell us what species are being caught most often, which you know people are finding. And if people are scuba divers, lots of scuba divers love to take cameras underwater. So whatever photos they take, if they come back and upload those into iNaturalist, that's more data for us about what species they're seeing, what things capture their attention. I mean, that that tells us from an outreach perspective what people find interesting. But from a science perspective, it tells us what species, how many, what are people seeing most often? What are they really noticing out there? And maybe somebody's going to take a picture one day and we're say, wait, we've never seen that species report. It might not be a new species, but it might be one that's never been seen in the flower gardens before. It might be in other parts of the Gulf of Mexico. So all that could be really cool data for us. It doesn't have to be the scientists out there doing that. Divers love to go out there. It's a beautiful habitat, lots of coral, lots of tropical reef fishes, whatever invertebrates, nooks and crannies are great. So people have who really like to explore that get lots of pictures of cool things that we don't notice very often when you're just swimming over the reef. Input can be done all the time through iNaturalist. And then something else that used to happen in the sanctuary is Reef Environmental Education Foundation out of Florida. Um, it goes by the name Reef, R-E-E-F. They do roving diver surveys as a system they've set up where any snorkeler or diver on any reef in any ocean habitat anywhere can submit data. And again, that's used for scientific purposes. So we used to do a teacher workshop and we would train teachers to do this and then they could take that back and teach other people. And we would collect data during their workshop while we took them diving. We would kind of fact check their, their work as they were doing it, make sure they were learning it properly. And then we'd submit their data. And so they can continue to do that on any reef they go to and submit data about what they're seeing. And scientists do use that data for writing scientific papers, talking about what species are seen where and, all, and population sizes and, and all these kinds of things. Since we stopped doing that workshop several years ago, we haven't noticed many surveys coming in from anybody else. So this summer, we're doing a really big kick to try and encourage these reef fish ID surveys. So you ID this species and the quantity you're seeing in, in grouping, like single, few, many, abundant. The system they set up that makes it very efficient. So I am going to be doing some fish ID classes right up my alley. We're going to be doing some in June and July at the very least, and probably throughout the summer. We're going to be doing a fish ID Friday on our Facebook pages. We already have feces lists on our website, but we're going to try and add damselfish. Which are the damselfish? This kind of galleries of them, of fish and things. Now, the galleries may not all get up this year, but we're working that direction to make it easier for people to start learning their fish and to be able to fill out those roving diver surveys for, through the reef system. Those are the two main citizen science activities we have. Those, those sound awesome and fun. And be I think it'd be fun to go down and spend a day, a few hours, whatever, learning fish identification and getting to play in the water. Yeah, it's got to be a diver to go out there because it's, you know, it's a multi-day trip. You don't get there quickly. But yes, but it's something you can use at any reef. So if you learn it with me, you can still use it when you go to the Florida Keys, where we also have a sanctuary, by the way. You go to the Hawaiian Islands, where we also have a sanctuary. Um, so other reefs, anywhere you go, you could do a roving diver survey just because you've been now trained how to do that. And you know you can identify certain species of fish and you can mark down the ones you know. 
what we've heard from divers when we've taught them this is that it makes their diving more meaningful. They get more out of their dives instead of just saying, wow, that's really cool. Look at that blue fish over there. Now I can name that blue fish. I can name that purple fish. Then share that when they share their beautiful photos saying, yeah, this was this really cool angel fish I saw, not just a really cool blue fish. Reef calls it diving that counts. And I like that. I think that's a, it's counting the fish. It matters. It's, it's all important. Again, science nerd, you know, yeah. uh, it's uh, fun plus data is fun. Yeah. So, yeah. And then in addition to those programs, I know you have a program with us up in June on the 27th. That's right. And if I'm not mistaken, I said it was going to be lessons learned from sea life. So we're going to talk about, you know, oceans have so many possibilities in them. What are the possibilities we could learn from what we're seeing there to stuff that applies in our day-to-day life? So what could you learn from an octopus? What could you learn from an angelfish? What could you learn from a shark? So things we we understand about these animals and turning that into a fun way to look at how we look at ourselves. Playing with sea life to understand the possibilities in our own lives is what this class is going to be all about. And I have it down for 2 p.m. on the 27th of June. Yes, that's going to be exciting. Thank you very much for joining us today, Kelly. And thank you all out there listening to the podcast. Be sure to come on the 27th. So learn, you know, looking at sea life can change your own lives. And exploring the oceans of possibilities. Hi, everyone. My name is Janelle. The month of May is Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month. And to honor that, I would like to talk about books about people or by the people of Asian or Pacific Islander descent. Last year for the Advanced Copy Podcast, I talked about books by young adult authors. This time around, I want to mix it up a bit. So this will be more about a variety of books with different audiences and different genres. The first book I would like to talk about is a children's picture book. The title is Eyes That Kissed the Corners by Joanna Ho. The illustrator is Dong Ho, and I'm not sure what the relation is with the author and illustrator, but they do have the same last name. The book is really, really sweet. A young girl talks about how her eyes are different from her peers. She says, I have eyes that kiss the corners and glow like warm tea. Her mother, grandmother, and little sister have similar eyes. The way she describes her family's eyes is quite poetic. For example, she says, Their eyes crinkle in a crescent moon and shine like starlight. Overall, it's a really beautiful book about self-acceptance. Joanna Ho also wrote like a boy version of this book, and it's called Eyes That Speak to the Stars, and it has a similar format. The next book is a juvenile chapter book called Hello Universe by Erin Entrada Kelly. Hello Universe won a Newbery Medal in 2018 and was on the Texas Blue Bonnet Award Master List in the year 2018 through 2019. The story is about a boy named Virgil. He is shy and reserved, very different from his loud Filipino family. The only person that really listens and talks to Virgil is his Lola, or grandma, in Filipino. She tells him stories about the past that serve a lesson in life. The author was inspired by Filipino folklore when she wrote the book. Valencia is Virgil's crush, and they don't really know each other that well. 
Valencia is deaf, and the way she communicates is using hearing aids and reading lips. She is very smart and loves nature. Cowrie is a self-proclaimed psychic, and her little sister Gen is like her assistant. One day, a bully named Chet throws Virgil's backpack down a well, which contained his pet guinea pig. While stuck down there, Cowrie, Gen, and Valencia seek out to find Virgil. I really enjoy the story and the characters. I found myself relating more to Virgil because I am also an introvert and I have a loud, outgoing family. My favorite character is probably Valencia. Not only because she's smart and loves nature, but because she doesn't let her disability hold her back. And Kaori, being a self-proclaimed psychic, doesn't believe in coincidences. She believes that the universe does work things out. However, I interpreted the ending as you can create your own destiny. For my young adult recommendation, it was really difficult to choose which book to talk about, so I will discuss two of them briefly. For last year's podcast, I mentioned War Cross by Marie Lu, and I stated that I hadn't finished the book at the time. So several months ago, I listened to the audiobook and to the sequel as well, which is called Wild Card. If you like the futuristic sci-fi genre, then this could be the book for you. Especially if you are into video games and esports. Emika Chen, who is the main character, was able to hack into one of the Warcross games, and the creator of Warcross was very impressed, and he actually recruited her onto one of the teams to investigate something sinister going on. The other book is Iron Widow by Sharon J. Zhao. And my sincerest apologies for mispronouncing any Chinese names or words within this segment. The story is described as Pacific Rim meets The Handmaid's Tale. It is in a futuristic society that has backwards views. For example, women are treated as second-class citizens, whereas males are uplifted and put on this pedestal. And the futuristic part is they fight in giant mechas. If you're not familiar with what a mecha is, it's basically a giant robot that is piloted by people. So if you are familiar with Pacific Rim, that's essentially what it is. So if you want a story about female empowerment, a femme fatale, and a reimagining of Chinese history and folklore, then this could be for you. I really recommend it. I enjoyed the story. And it is the first book that I've seen with trigger warnings, so I really appreciated that. The main character of Iron Widow is Wu Zhenxian, who is who was the actual Chinese empress back in 400 or 500 AD. It's just an interesting take on using Chinese history and folklore and put into this futuristic story. It's it's pretty cool. So I recommend the book. Just read the trigger warnings. The next book is by Jose Antonio Vargas. This is his memoir called Dear America, Notes from an Undocumented Citizen. Vargas was born in the Philippines. When he was 12, 
his mother sent him to the United States to live with her parents. Around age 16, he tried to apply for a driver's permit, and that's when he found out his documents were fake. This memoir is about Vargas's life as an immigrant. His emotions, struggles, and things he had to do in order to survive and stay in America. His story is one of many. I recommend this book because it takes a deeper look, a first-hand view of the anxiety of living in a country that doesn't think you belong. There is so much about immigration than what's on the surface. So I just want to say thank you all for listening and... I hope you pick up one of the books that I recommended. Have a beautiful day. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Advanced Copy. Like, subscribe, and share this podcast with any who you feel might enjoy learning a little bit more about their local Atascacita Branch Library. You've been listening to Atascacita Library Advanced Copy. Find information on media used and resources mentioned on our podcast webpage. This podcast is produced by the staff of Atascacita Branch Library, a part of the Harris County Public Library System. Funds for the podcast are provided by a grant from Best Buy through the Friends of Atascacita Library. Find out more about this 501c3 organization at foal.ws. That's F-O-A-L dot W-S.